please, to the uh, second chapter of Second Kings. Didn't think about it in time, Bill. We should have uh, sung "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot." This is the uh, that's the Negro spiritual that's taken from this uh, the events that are described in this uh, chapter. Second Kings two. It came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But but Elisha said, As the Lord lives and you you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Elijah was, uh, as uh, my grandkids used to say, old and timey. Uh, We don't know exactly how old he was. He probably lived well into the time of Jehoram. He was, uh, according to Jewish chronology, in the commencement of old age in the decade from the uh, 60s to the uh, 70s. His zeal for God that we've been observing in these chapters had been tempered by suffering and Anguish and disappointment and loneliness and frustration and, and failure. Wisdom had uh, softened his face. He was characterized by what James would call gentle wisdom. He was uh, now at the end of his life given a period of comparative calm and the uh, so-called sons of the prophets, young seminary students, uh, prophets preparing for their ministries began to, to gather to him and he powerfully uh, influenced them in these golden years of his life. It occurs to me that the best, in li- uh, best things in life are old, old trees and old houses and old books and, and old friends. The world keeps... Uh, telling us that the years of youth are the years of wine and roses, but I, uh, I don't agree. I agree with, uh, with Browning when he wrote, uh, Come grow old with me, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first is made. I think the Lord takes these uh, last years of our lives and touches them with unsurpassing fragrance and Grace makes them exceedingly meaningful. and There's something about someone who's been tempered by years of experience and life that 
gives them a tremendous, uh, gives them the opportunity to have a tremendous influence upon others. Their nearness to God has rubbed off on them, and they're able to uh, to rub off on others. One of the proverbs says, "A hoary head is a thing of glory, if it is found in the way of righteousness." People don't necessarily get better just because they get older. Some people get uh, to be old fools. Uh, they get crabby and irascible and impossible to live with, and they complain about everything, and they don't like uh, what anybody does for them, and they become exceedingly uh, difficult to, to be around. But you don't have to get old and sour. Getting older can mean getting better if it's found in the way of righteousness. If we continue to walk with God with uh, childlike uh, faith, then uh, wisdom does begin to soften our face and we can have uh, a profound influence upon others. Aging doesn't have to be dying. It can be growing. Uh, I, uh, this last week, read a story about an elderly uh, uh, gentleman who was a gardener and he was asked how old he was. He said, I'm an octogeranium. And uh, I thought, that's great. There's a bit of uh, profound philosophy in that whimsy. We don't have to get old and dried up. You know, we can have that same flower-like uh, flavor and fragrance and grace. If, see, that's the big if. If we continue to uh, walk in righteousness. We can say with the Apostle Paul that we didn't get obsolete when we got old. We got better. He says, I have finished the course. To the end, I have run the race to the finish. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a, a crown of righteousness that the Lord will give to me and to all those who love his, uh, his appearing. So God can use you in your older years in, a way, in ways that you never, uh, never dreamed or imagined he could use you. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, and he, he says, Now I want you to tell the older women in your congregation Look after the younger women, to train them, to teach them, to help them in their responsibilities, to teach them to love their husbands, and to love their children. And he says, so you're, he says, tell these older women to be reverent in their behavior. And the word he uses for reverent is the word for a priest, to act like a priest, to stand between them and God, to represent them before God by praying for these younger women in your life and to represent God before them by training them in in righteousness. What a wonderful way to spend your the final years of your life, not uh, just frittering away your time, but investing in the lives of, of younger women, uh, mentoring them. And uh, the same is true of uh, older men. You know, why waste your life sitting on a park bench and playing pinochle? You have the opportunity to invest yourself in, in the lives of younger men. Harvey McKay in his book, uh, How to Swim with the Sharks, says we ought to find an old grizzly. And when you get to be an old grizzly, try to find an even older grizzly. We all uh, need these old grizzlies in our life that have been around for a while and know what's up and know us, uh, know they've developed some skill at living. He describes certain people in, in the shop that uh, they don't really do much anymore except just wander around and tell uh, younger people how to do their jobs better. Sometimes that doesn't go over very well, but... Uh, Younger people need to listen to them because they've mastered certain skills. And how, uh, how that's true in, in the Christian realm, the spiritual realm. 
There are certain uh, old duffers among us, old grizzlies, that have walked a long time with God, and that nearness has rubbed off on them, and just being around them is a enriches our, our lives. So I would encourage you older women to, to start praying for some young woman to train and to, to teach and to encourage, to help her get a better grip on God. And the same for you older men, to start praying that God would give you a younger man to be your Timothy that you can spend time with. And uh, you younger women, to pray for an older woman in your life. And correspondingly, you, you, you young men, to pray for someone who will move alongside you and encourage you in, in your walk with uh, God. And that's the kind of relationship that Elijah and Elisha had. Of all of the sons of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha was more like his father. He just clung to him, and he wanted to learn from him and grow from that relationship. And as you can see from the passage that I read uh, it was a reciprocal relationship. Elijah cared for Elisha, and Elisha loved Elijah like you wouldn't believe. And he wouldn't be separated from the older gentleman. He stuck to him like a limpet. Whenever Elijah said, I'm going to have to leave you now, Elisha would say, no, I'm not going to leave you. And, and when the sons of the prophets would say, you know Elijah's going to have to, have to leave you, Elisha would say, don't, don't. He said, don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to. And he just stayed with, with Elijah to the very end until uh, they made their way down to the, uh, to the Jordan River. And, uh, and Elijah did a, uh, an odd thing. Verse, uh, verse 7, Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the, by the Jordan. Elijah knew that God's will lay on the other side. He knew that his, his death was imminent. And Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, And they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Elijah took off his uh, mantle, which was the symbol of his office as a prophet, rolled it up and struck the waters. They parted just as they had parted in Joshua's day. And Elijah and Elisha walked through the Jordan on dry ground just as Israel had once walked across the Jordan. Here's a man with enormous spiritual power. It's not the sort of thing that you see men and women doing every day. Here's, here's a, an act that could not be explained merely in terms of Elijah's personality or his power or his training or his intelligence or his background. He had a, a deft touch. There was something about him that was unusual. And uh, Elisha already knew that, and he very much wanted what, uh, what Elijah had. And so when Elijah posed the question, verse 9, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you, or when he, uh, when he offered that opportunity. Uh, Elisha's response in verse 9 was, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Remember I mentioned in our first message on Elijah that Elijah is the prophet by which all other prophets are measured in both the Old and, and the New Testament. They are... Uh, judged by the extent to which they possess the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was one of the most remarkable men of all times. And uh, uh, Elisha, he says, I, I want a double portion of that spirit. Now, he's not asking for twice as much of the spirit than uh, Elijah possessed. What he's asking for is the right of the firstborn. 
The oldest uh, member of the family by right of primogeniture was the one who inherited a double portion. A double portion was always the right of the firstborn. But what he's asking for is the right to be the successor to Elijah's ministry of impact and influence on Israel. Elisha asked for the right stuff. So he didn't, he didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for personal power. He didn't ask to be the pastor of a mega church. He didn't ask for uh, uh, to, to, uh, to be uh, even successful. He just wanted to be the, the heir to Elijah's ministry. Elijah's ministry see. And uh, Elijah posed a test. Odd sort of thing. It seems so unscriptural. This is just not the kind of thing that, that you would expect to find in the Bible. It came about as they were going along and talking that, uh, excuse me, verse 10, and he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. It's almost like magic. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing that a godly man would do. It's kind of a, a, a trick here that he's, that he's pulling on, on Elisha. Uh, the, what is this ordeal? What, what, what does he mean by this test? Well, let's read on, verse 11. Then it came about as they were going along, walking along and talking, and they made their way up the slope on the other side of the Jordan River and, and down, down the slopes uh, on the other side. The prophets that were on the west side of the, uh, of the Jordan could no longer see them, but they were all alone out in one of the canyons there in, in what is uh, modern-day Jordan. And as they were walking along and talking, behold, there appeared, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw them no more than he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in, in two pieces. Now, what, what is it that's, that's going on here? Well, a, an ordinary person standing there would not have seen those uh, chariots. They would have seen Elijah, perhaps Elijah disappear, and they might think that he had uh, moved around behind a rock or down into a canyon. And one moment he was there, and the next moment he was gone. Now, that's all they would have, have seen. But to Elisha, who had the eyes of faith, he got a glimpse into the world of unseen reality. It occurs to me that this may be what happens at everyone's death, everyone who belongs to our Lord Jesus, that there is a chariot that, that swings low and takes us off to heaven. I don't know, but at least in, in Elijah's case, there was this, just this glimpse of the unseen world. And Elisha saw what cannot be seen. You see that? He had a little glimpse into the world of reality beyond what you can see and taste and touch and, 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 and experience here. See, this isn't all there is. There's another world of reality there. And Elisha saw it. And the, the point to be taken from all of this is that he could succeed to Elijah's ministry if he had the ability to see the unseen, if he had the faith of Elijah, because what made Elijah the man that he was 
was not his personality and his background and his intelligence and his, his humor and the way he dressed and the way he looked. What made Elijah and what gave him the spirit and the power that characterized his ministry was that he operated by faith. He counted on God, you see. A group of people came to Jesus one time and they said, uh, what can we do to work the works of God? Now, that's something everyone wants to do. We all want to do what God is doing in the world. How can we align ourselves with God and do what God is doing? We don't want to work contrary to him. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. It's not a matter of methods. It's not a matter of technique. It's a matter of trust and belief and faith. Believing that God is at work in this in this unseen realm to will and to do of of his good pleasure, see. Now, faith makes real what is reality out in that uh, unseen realm. That's the point of connection. That's what brings that unseen realm into the realm of our experience. Now, you say, well, that just sounds like words to me. How, how can I see the unseen? All I see is what's around me. Well, the way you see the unseen world is by reading the Bible, see? That's what opens our eyes to the, the realm of reality that's, that's beyond sight. Uh, Paul puts it like this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, in those days, they didn't carry Bibles around their pockets. They didn't have printing presses. and Bibles were very rare. And what they had was a scroll of Isaiah or a scroll of Jeremiah or a portion of the Old Testament. And when the church gathered, they would read it and you would hear it. Or they would read Paul's latest letter and that was accepted as scripture and you would hear it. Now, if Paul were writing today, he would say faith comes by reading, not hearing because we can read the text. Faith comes by reading. Reading what? And reading by the word of God. See? That's how faith in the unseen world is generated. By reading. Now, you know, our problem is we read Newsweek and we read Time and, and we read People magazine. And, and that's where we get our view of reality. And we look out there on our world and we say, my goodness, that's a gosh awful world. I don't see how I can possibly cope in this world. And that's our view of reality. But when we start to read the scriptures, then our eyes are open and we begin to see what's really true. I, this last week I had two funerals. And uh, in both cases there was a real note of celebration and joy. Now I've been, I've been at funerals where that's not true. But in this case these were, these were elderly saints that had walked with God. And, and they gained an abundance, abundant entrance into heaven as Peter puts it. And there was, a, there was a great note of celebration and joy at those funerals. Sorrow, yes, because of the separation. Grief. Sadness, you know, Christians aren't Stoics. We don't try to suppress our emotions. There was grief. But people there didn't sorrow as those that have no hope. Why? Well, you remember the verse that was read to us earlier? Though the outward man is perishing, and eventually it does perish, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And he says, we know that because we walk not by faith, but by sight. We keep our eyes on the unseen world, see? We know because God has promised that, that this is not all there is. 
And so we're going to see these two wonderful old saints someday in, in the Lord's presence. That's why we don't sorrow as those that have no hope. And that's what it means to see the unseen seen world. And I was talking to another person a couple of weeks ago, and they were telling me that, that, that they couldn't do this particular thing that God wanted them to do because it, would, it was too dangerous psychologically. Now, we should never put ourselves in situations that are dangerous to our psyches just in order to test our faith. But in this case, the, the issue was to do what God had asked this person to do or to not do it. And this individual was saying, if I do what God asked me to do, I will destroy myself. And I uh, just, it's one of those things that the Spirit of God brings to mind. I had just read that day a, a statement that Jesus made to the disciples. His friend Lazarus was sick. It was reported to him that, that Lazarus was, was uh, very ill, and uh, Jesus didn't do anything about it. He delayed for two days, and the apostles couldn't understand it because Lazarus was his best friend. And then after two days, when Lazarus was already dead, we know that from the chronology, he had been dead for at least two days. The Lord says, all right, now we're going to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples say, now, wait a minute. When he was sick, you didn't go. Now that he's dead and you could do nothing about it, uh, you're going. And don't you know that you're putting your head in a noose, that if you go to Jerusalem, they're, they're going to kill you. They've got a contract out on your life. And Jesus said the most remarkable thing. He's always throwing out these little enigmatic statements to make us think. And this is the... Ropricus, uh, textus ropricus absurdus here. Jesus says, uh, he says, now look, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If you walk in the daylight, you don't fall over things. If you walk around in the darkness, you're going to stumble over everything. What's his point? Safest place to be is in the light. What's the light? The will of God. Therefore, the safest place in the world for us is in the will of God. See? Now, you don't believe that unless you see the unseen. If, if, if you're just looking at what, what, what you see, then you, you wouldn't form that conclusion. You'd be looking out for yourself all the time. But if you really believe that out there in that invisible realm are billions and trillions of angels that are coming after you and coming after your enemies and, and they're there to protect you. Remember the passage that John read earlier about the situation in Dothan? It's one of my favorite stories. You've heard me tell it before. Elisha, Elisha, the one who saw the chariot coming to take Elijah home, shut up in the city of Dothan, Syrian army surrounding. The servant looks over the wall, panics. Elijah, Elisha says, hey, no, nothing to worry about. There's more of us than there are them. And the servant said, no, there's more of us than, than there are of them. And then he prays. Lord, open his eyes. He opens his eyes and he sees that the mountains covered with the hosts of, of God. Now there's just a little glimpse, just, just, just a, a little peek into the world of reality. See, our world is full of fantasy. Most of what we think is real here today is not real at all. We're living in a dream world. The real world is out there. And it's faith that makes the connection between the, the world, the invisible world, and, and, and our visible world here today. And you say, well, that's really hard for me. I can't get it from here to here. Well, let me tell you how that, how that happens. Let, let me read something from the book of Ephesians. Paul... Uh, Spelling out some of the benefits of being a, 
a Christian, he says, you're, you're chosen by God to be holy and blameless. And, and, and you're, you're, you've been given the adoption of sons. And, and you have redemption. You've been bought out of sin through his blood. And you've obtained a wonderful inheritance. Heaven is on ahead. In the meantime, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're not going to lose the inheritance that's yours. It's laid up. You've got the title deed in your hands. And we say, those are just words to me. You see, those are all things that are true out there in, in, in the unseen world. And it just sounds like words. So Paul says, for this reason... I am praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, so that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so you may know. Brennan Manning says the most difficult and dangerous journey is the trip from here to here. How do you get there? It's through prayer. It's through prayer. You read the words on the page and you say, Lord, I don't believe that. Help my unbelief. And you begin to grow in faith. Uh, Another passage in Ephesians 4, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith is a gift. See, faith is not a matter of just trying very hard to believe a lot of creeds that are difficult to believe. That's not the point. Faith is, uh, as we used to say in Texas, just uh, getting a holt of God. It's just getting a glimpse of that reality out there that, that you, you don't see in the newspapers, not in the Statesman, not in Newsweek, it's not in Reader's Digest. It's in the Word. See, faith is just, is just getting a little glimpse of what's real and saying, oh, I find it very hard to believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And we begin to grow in faith. And then after a while, you do begin to develop a... a, a I don't like to think of it as doctrines or creeds, but just kind of a construct of, of, of what God is really like, an understanding of God. You can call it theology if you want to, but you don't start there. You start with believing whatever you can believe. Whatever you see, maybe it's some very small thing, but you have some glimpse of reality, and you begin to believe that and ask God to, get, to open your eyes to see more and more. And then after a while, you begin to develop this system of, of thinking, see, but... You got to start in the right place, kind of gliding a fuse. Makes all the difference in the world where you start. You got to start with just believing whatever you can. That's all. And uh, here, what we have in Second Kings is uh, just one of those little glimpses. Uh, Elisha wants Elijah's ministry and. And, and, and Elijah prayed for Elisha, I suppose, opened his eyes. And when the chariot came, Elisha saw. That's literally what the text says in verse 12. Elisha saw, not it. He saw. His eyes were open. And uh, he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Sons of the prophets refer to their teachers as fathers, just as uh, those in medieval monasteries referred to their uh, leaders, their mentors, uh, as, as fathers, as uh, abbots. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, he saw them, see, and then he saw them no more, just a little glimpse. And then verse 13, he took up the mantle of Elijah. The mantle fluttered down out of the, 
out of the sky, the old worn-out mantle that Elijah had worn through all those years, the symbol of the, of the office that Elijah held. And Elisha picked it up, and he, he realized the school was out. He graduated. He, he now had, uh, could follow in Elijah's footsteps. He had succeeded to Elijah's ministry. and So he was going to do what Elijah did. He took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Here, here's his opportunity. The Jordan apparently was in flood stage. He couldn't, couldn't afford it, and so he was going to part the waters as Elijah did. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters. And then he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he struck, and let me add a word here, he struck the waters again. And they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. It isn't apparent from the English text, but the Hebrew text makes it very clear, and so do the early translations, that he at first struck, struck the water and nothing happened. And I could see Elisha coming up to the banks. Here's his chance to test out his power and authority. And he has, a, he has Elijah, Elijah's mantle, so he rolls it up and uh, tries to remember exactly how Elijah did it. And he strikes the water and nothing happens. He says, well, maybe I'd do it right. So he wrapped it in his arm, you know, and he, and he positioned himself a little differently and tried it again. Nothing happens. And I don't know how many times he repeated that process, but it didn't work. The mantle didn't work. And so he cried out, where is the God of Elijah? And in and in making that statement, it dawned on him what he was doing. He was trusting Elijah's mantle and not the God of Elijah. And it is so much. And I can identify with that so closely. We see someone that God is using greatly, like, like Billy Graham or Luis Palau or uh, Becky Pippert when she was here. And we think, oh, you know, the, so much uh, power resident in that person. If I could just speak like that or if I could dress like that... You know, if I had that person's personality or intelligence or humor, if I'd had the schooling that they'd had, you know, or if I, there's some method or technique by which they carry out their ministry, then I could, I could vitally touch people's lives. And, and we, we forget that, that people don't have power. God doesn't break off a piece of power and give it to one and then to, a, to other. God is the sole possessor of power. Elijah didn't have any power. All he had was God. And when you have God, you have all the power that, that you need. See? There's no power in method or techniques or mannerisms. You know, I graduated from Dallas Seminary, and Howard Hendricks was my uh, major professor, and, and I, I found myself a little clone of Howard Hendricks. I was talking like he, you know, talking out of one side of my mouth and gesturing like, like, like how he did, because I had this feeling that, you know, if I could just somehow do it like how he does it, then I could get the results that how he gets. And I forgot that there's no power in the man. There's no power in the woman. There's no power in the prophet. There's no power in the preacher. There's only power in God. You know, what happens invariably is that God raises up some man or woman and they go out and do some great thing by faith. And they usually write a book and we read the book and we try to do it exactly like, exactly like they did it. And we take their methods and foist it on our situation. It doesn't work at all. And we, we say, where is the God of Elijah? And then it dawns on us that there's no power in methods. That's why I always uh, break out into a cold sweat when I see, you know, ten, ten things that will make your church more powerful or this program that's going to turn your people inside out. And no, 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 no. 
It's, it's good to look at things. You may, you may discover some helpful hints, but there is no power in techniques. There's no power in schemes and methods. and There's only power in God. That's all. And if we're going to work the works of God, we've got to work the works of God by faith. It's as we rely upon Him and we look beyond the scene into that invisible realm and we see what's really going on that we're able to, uh, to do His works. Uh, there's a postscript here that strikes me as fairly humorous. Uh, verse 15, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jerusalem opposite him saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They, they saw him part the water and they realized that he did indeed possess all the authority of, of, of Elijah. But they, they were more comfortable with tangible things. It was hard for them to understand that uh, it wasn't Elisha who had power. It was the God of Elijah and Elisha who generated uh, this ability to part the waters. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. He did have authority. They realized that now. But then they said to him, Behold now, there are with with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, "You You shall not sin. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Okay. Go ahead and look. And they sent, therefore, 50 men, and they searched three days, but they didn't find him. And they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Didn't I say to you, don't don't go? See, they were looking for something more tangible than faith. They wanted the old prophet back. You know, I, in working with some of these young pastors around the hills and, and Idaho Mountain Ministries, I see this sort of thing happening all the time. Some dear old man ministers to a church for years and then he leaves and a new pastor comes and everybody yearns for the old pastor. Because that's where the power was. That's that's the man that had all the wisdom and they're they're very uncomfortable with with the new person that that comes. They they want the old parson. That's what these prophets want. We want the old prophet. That's the fellow that has the power. And they forgot. There's no power in the prophet. There's no power in the parson. There's no power in the people. There's only power in God. Next week, we're going to start our studies in 1 Corinthians. And one of the first things we're going to see in that book is the best way to ruin a church is to idolize your your pastors and your leaders, both men and and women who give leadership to the church. Uh, that, that, That will destroy a church because that's just idolatry. That's all it is. It's looking to someone other than God for the answers and the solutions to problems. Let me leave you with one one verse. I'd like to have you turn there, if you would. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. Pardon me, chapter 13. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it was someone who was two generations down from the apostles. Wasn't one of the apostles. And he writes in verse 7 of chapter 13, Remember those who led you. All right, that's the apostles and then what we call the sub-apostolic fathers, the next generation. 
These are the heavyweights. James, Peter, John. These were the pillars of the church as well as the apostles. And he says, remember them. They, they spoke the word of God to you. Which is really the only thing that anyone can do in leadership. We don't have anything to say. The only word we have to address to God's people is God's word. That's all. That's the only basis of authority that, that we have. All we can do is tell you what God is, has said. So what's memorable about these people, he says, that they, is that they spoke the word of, of God to you. They opened your eyes so you could begin to see that unseen world. So remember them. And reflecting upon the outcome or the results of their way of life. I mean, these were people that had tremendous influence in their time. They impacted the world eternally for Christ. Remembering the results of their ministries, eh, their way of life, imitate their, what? You tell me. Faith. Not their methods. Not their mannerisms. Not their techniques. Not their schemes. Not their ways of getting thing done, things done. Imitate their faith. See? Because that's what makes things happen. That's how you work the works of God. You work the works of God by believing on the one whom he has sent. Now let's pray. Would that that were true of us, Lord, that we were a congregation of men and women who saw the unseen clearly. And who do not take this world at face value, but realize that we live in a world of lies and fantasies, half-truths. We pray that uh, we'd be men and women of, of your book, that we would, we'd read it. We'd read other, other material to be aware of what's going on out, out there in the world, but our ultimate final authority would be your book that we would take the facts in that book and that by your spirit and through our dependence upon you, those facts might become reality in our lives and we would really believe them. And that we then would be able to work your works wherever we go. We'd be able to live our lives skillfully, that we'd be able to go into, our, into the marketplace, into our schools, into our neighborhoods and, and be salty and be sources of light, live righteously, and live in such a way that, that people are, are drawn to you. And that we, we would have that deft touch that comes from understanding how you work. And we'd have that calmness and poise, quietness of heart that comes from knowing that you are at work, regardless of circumstances, and that we would be able to go through the hard and difficult times of, of life with with calm and aplomb and, and, and sweetness of spirit because we see that, that you're using everything in life to make us more effective, to give us greater impact on others, and to make us everything that you want us to be. And just pray that we'd have that, uh, that outlook on life, that we would see the things that cannot be seen. 
we ask in Jesus' name.